Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you all back to the Merge Medical Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Brown. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jeff Cole and Dr. Brittany Bassi. She is the co-founder of Vitel Health, which is a champion for independent physician practices, equitable care, promoting lifestyle and food as medicine. Did I pronounce your name right, Brittany? Yep, that's right. All right. Welcome. I don't know much about Vitel, but we were chatting offline. It sounds like something that we all should be interested in, especially after the article we just posted about 40% of physicians are contemplating leaving the profession in the next two years. Kind of scary, right? Yeah. I mean, if you even look back at during COVID, I think, you know, they estimated we lost about 17 to 25% of the practicing physicians directly from their practices. And those weren't just physicians who were retiring out. Like those were young, early practice physicians who should have had long careers in the medical system. And for the most part, we don't know where a lot of them went. Some of them did start um, direct care practices. Some of them are still looking around to see what's out there as far as consulting agreements. A lot of them aren't sure if they even still want to practice medicine anymore, if it's worth it, if they can afford to compete in a corporately owned market. So we initially founded Vital Health back in um, 2020 and, and incorporated in 2021 as a, a platform, as a service model. So, so beyond just offering software, we wanted to offer physicians a place where they could find everything they needed to launch an independent practice of their own and to thrive in that practice. So we would source everything from discounts on contracting and credentialing to malpractice insurance to the legal aspect that the physicians needed um, in order to spin up a corporation. We had contacts in bookkeeping, accounting, and overall, we were just trying to focus on helping physicians start the lowest cost practice that they could, which was a, a digital health practice, a direct-to-consumer digital health practice. So why should patients be forced to go to a teledoc or an Amwell and get a 10-minute appointment with somebody they've never met before mm. when they can have a direct primary care physician or a direct specialist relationship where they can go to that person no matter what it is that they need. And they know that when they text that number, when they sign up for the video visit, um, when they have a telephone call, they know exactly who they're talking to. They're talking to Dr. Bussey. They're talking to Dr. Brown. They know what to expect and you know who they are too. So those types of conversations go a lot easier than trying to explain to some person you haven't met before what your entire medical background is. You're prone to leave things out. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, two weeks later, they so they told you had a virus. They said, come back in two weeks if you're not better. So you come back two weeks later, you get a different doctor. And that doctor's like, okay, explain the whole thing to me again. Like, well, I want to talk to the last doctor because they told me in two weeks I could have antibiotics if I wasn't better, you mm -hmm. know, and that's not the type of experience that people want from the medical system, but it's the type of experience that they're having, whether they go, like I said, to teledoc or even if they go to their primary physician's office in a hospital system, my son's been seen by no less than four different doctors and he's only two years old. And every time he's been sick, we can never get an appointment with his pediatrician. We have to see whatever pediatrician or resident pediatrician or nurse practitioner is available to see us. Larger hospital systems and even like One Medicals and all of these other places, they're replacing us with mid-levels because they're cheaper. And they think they can do the same job as we can do. And the patient's 
are not happy usually with that, but there's nothing they can do. They're kind of trapped in the system. So I've talked to a lot of physicians who were let go by large medical systems and replaced with mid-levels like, well, what do I do next? And I'm like, well, just open your own practice. And like all those patients who are stuck seeing the mid-level at the hospital, like they want their doctor back. So you just start your own practice and, you know, let the patients know where you are and a lot of them are going to come back. So it was really an independent practice platform that wasn't just about the EHR. It was also about the services that we can collect and utilize together um, to form an independent practicing medical group. Well, it sounds like that's a lot of moving parts. Like, I, I don't see how you put that all together. Walk us back, like say I'm a pain physician and, and I've got a pain practice. Um, how would I come to Vitel and say, hey, I want to set up my own practice. Walk me through the process if you can. Yeah. So our product has definitely evolved over the past two years because like you said, there were a lot of moving parts and um, it was Initially, we wanted to create like a bespoke medical practice experience for them. Um, It ended up requiring a lot more upfront costs on our part. It wasn't a super viable model. Um, So if you had come to us at that time and we were starting up a practice for you, um, we would have connected you to our credentialing specialist, you know, gotten everything up and running from that standpoint. If you needed to contract to insurance companies, um, Mm -hmm. they could run you through that process. Um, from a legal aspect, like I say, you haven't started anything at all. Like you don't even know, you know, if you need an LLC or a corporation right. or, you know, wh- how you want to structure your practice, they would, their legal experts would walk you through that aspect of it. Um, even just simply down to, I just need technology. So we have an EHR platform that's proprietary to Vital Health. Uh, it was initially built out for specialty practices in workers' comp and occupational health, um, but it's really highly adaptable to any kind of medical practice that you're starting. So we have like dermatologists on the platform, neurologists, uh, pain management specialists, OBGYNs who do um, like hormone replacement therapy practices, um, obesity medicine practices, in addition to internal medicine and family medicine practices. So a lot all over the place. The, the system's very flexible. So unlike legacy systems like Epic, mm-hmm. um, we particularly built our system to be modular so that you could easily swap things in and out, turn things on and off. So depending on the view that the physician wants to take and the workflow that the physician has, we can kind of swap things out to make it more customizable very easily where most of these legacy systems or even some of the the cheaper systems like practice fusion and charm like it's just you buy it it's out of the box you make it work for you they don't make it work for you and we took a very opposite approach to that as far as you know we know the system's not perfect it was built for one specialty it works really well anyone can run a practice on it for an mvp but you want things that work more particular to your workflows and the way that you've always always done things. Mm-hmm. We take that um, very seriously that that this is a tool for physicians made by physicians to meet their needs. It was never intended to be something that is just used only one way. So if I'm a physician sitting at home listening to this, I'm, I've watched the last few years practices get forced 
to be bought by hospitals or forced to be bought by private private equity because it can't afford the EMR mm-hmm. because it costs gazillions of dollars. So you've got, you know, Dr. Brown that's got his pain practice or Dr. Cole and inter- internist. He's had to join groups because he can't afford it. So my first thought in hearing this is how did you make it so affordable and that anybody can pick this up and it be something they can put into their practice or their independent practice, by the way. Yeah. So, you know, we were very fortunate that we had a system that we had spent many years building um, for another use case um, in telehealth. And like I said, it was built as an occupational health tool. Um, It was utilized by many physicians treating patients at large self-insured companies, including myself. Um, When that company rolled up, we kept the technology. So it's been in use since 2013. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a 10 year plus um, shelf life of usefulness at this point, and it's constantly adapting. So there wasn't a lot for us to, as far as like to make up the cost of the development of the technology, but the ongoing development and support is really mm-hmm. important. And we support that by having other platforms and other services that help um, kind of subsidize, I guess you would say, yeah. the EHR proper. So the EHR itself would only cost a practice $95 a month. Oh, that's really cheap. Yeah, but we have an, an accessory platform for remote patient monitoring and chronic care management. That's actually a completely vertically integrated system that I run so that a practice can utilize it without any additional administrative costs, without any additional um, people costs and no HR costs. We employ all of those individuals and we're able to create an additional revenue stream for the physician practice that also creates a significant revenue stream for Vital Health so that we can keep all of our technology running on AWS platform. That's fantastic. That's great. What have been the early results for remote patient monitoring and what are the feedbacks? Is is it, I mean, I, I get worried sometimes when, when fantastic solutions come along but they're seen as a money grab and people mm-hmm. use it improperly and then it gets taken away um where do you think we stand there yeah i think it was really tricky when we started probably about 18 months ago with our first client um you know the technology was simple for us like my partner is is cto and ceo and he has a, a technology and medical technology background Um, and a real passion for helping individuals with chronic disease. Um, Both of his brothers died from preventable conditions related to diabetes and heart disease. Um, And he was really passionate about bringing the remote monitoring technology. And, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, like I'm really passionate about lifestyle medicine. You know, myself, I've never liked prescribing pills. I actually went into surgery initially as a resident because I said like, I'm not gonna be a prescriber for my entire life. Like I just could not see myself as internal medicine or family medicine. Um, it, it wasn't in alignment with how I live my life. So I live my life, you know, pretty drug free um, a lot of natural things, living, eating clean, you know, exercising. I'm a yoga instructor. So I said, how do we blend my way of being in the world and, and my own medical leaning with what we're doing for physicians' offices, because not physicians just don't have the luxury in most cases of 
knowing a lot about nutrition or how to de-prescribe medications or how to manage chronic diseases, you know, especially you know, talking to Dr. Cole and other surgeons with having a surgical background, it's that I don't know how your experience was as a resident, but I know my orthopedic colleagues would often call the hospitalist as soon as their patient was admitted, just in case <laughs> something oh, yeah. happened to happen and they needed a sliding scale or they needed some blood pressure medicine. They were just Anything. Like, don't call me for that. Yeah. You know? And so our idea is to always provide that line of support, whether it's to a primary care physician's office with our panel of health coaches and nurses who actually guide patients through, you know, their nutrition, their exercise, through stress management, um, through removing any of like addictive substances from their lives, um, just really helping them from those like seven to eight key areas that lifestyle medicine focuses on to get a holistic picture. And we like to hire certified health coaches because they have that background that we in the medical profession often lack when it comes to how to have a motivational interview with a patient, like how not just to listen, but then also to help the patient, you know, with the help of like cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and, and other things to actually change their minds about their current health journey and their current lifestyle and their current relationship to their chronic diseases. So by utilizing our health coaches, they create these amazing relationships with patients. Like I said before, like this is relational, this is medicine. We cannot expect that these one-off appointments are going to lead to any significant change for anybody. Mm. So our coaches take a very, you know, targeted one-on-one -on -one approach with patients. They carry a, you know, reasonable panel so that they can meet with patients at least twice per month and continue to work with them on their goals. And both the patients and the doctors absolutely love it. So we've had patients who are, you know, being de-prescribed hypertensive medications that they've been on for years that are, you know, finding ways to better manage their blood sugar, they're losing weight, they're happier. We had a patient who's in his late 70s tell us he feels better than he did in his 50s. But above all, the patients are actually feeling really seen for the first time by the medical establishment. So whether that's just a single concierge physician or a larger group practice, um, the patients finally feel a connection to those practices. So they're less likely to just up and leave and go to the practice down the street because they feel like, oh, for once the doctor sees me and the doctor partnered me with this other person. I said the revenue from that, like you said, it, it, it was kind of a scene of as a money grab. We have a lot of bad actors, um, frankly, in this, in this system. And they are putting a lot of risk on the physicians whose NPIs they are using to bill Medicare for these services. So from our standpoint, it was really important to have a fully integrated program that meets all of the compliance, that meets all of the documentation, that ensures that the physician ordering these things and billing for these things is at, like, I don't know if there are ever zero risk, but it's definitely as small as we could reasonably expect to get it mm -hmm. in terms of triggering an audit, of having the DOJ look into what you're doing in your practice. Um, and so in order to do all of that, we end up splitting the revenue 60-40 with the practice where we take 60% to cover all of our costs associated with the technology and the employment of the health coaches and, and tax and all of that stuff and compliance. And then 
you know, giving that money back to the physician practice as essentially passive revenue because they don't have to do any of the documentation. They don't have to do any of the billing. They just need to send us the patients and follow up on any alerts that we send them. So it works great for primary care um, in terms of our, our surgical colleagues. We definitely see this as a program where we could you know, pair a primary care physician out in the workplace, maybe one who had left practice um, previously and is looking for patients to care for with that, you know, surgical practice in order to optimize patients preoperatively and also care for them through the post-operative period using the remote monitoring and working together with the team of health coaches. So it offers an opportunity for the surgeons to practice more safely in the ASCs um, and to know that their patient vital signs are being monitored post-operatively as well as, you know, those preoperative things that you know you need to do. So what's the most important way most surgeons avoid post-operative complications is through good preoperative planning. But if you're just looking at a diabetic patient's hemoglobin A1c, you may not be getting a good picture of where they're at right now, right? So let's just take a knee replacement patient who's been in pain. Um, their inflammatory markers are likely elevated. They may be eating poorly. They're likely not exercising as well as they were. So even if their hemoglobin A1C was normal six months ago or nine months ago, that doesn't mean that their blood sugar is normal now. So we want to take a look at what is that blood sugar now in the immediate preoperative period, and can we get that under better control um, immediately preoperatively and postoperatively after we do damage essentially to the patient by cutting the skin, cutting the bone, hammering the new um, hardware in there, that, that causes blood sugar spikes. So we want to make sure that those things are monitored, that they're cared for um, in the immediate postoperative period so that you don't have infections and so that the patients recover better. So there's a lot of ways that we can utilize remote monitoring um, to boost the throughput and also the revenue of many different types of practices. Well, I think, you know, humans are, are social species, right? And even the most shy person wants that that interaction, they, they, they want the consistency. And I think what you're providing is fantastic. And it just makes me think of the example, and I don't remember the name of the company right now, but basically the AI doctor in a square silver, <laughs> you know, it's like Forward. Really what, what Silicon Valley thinks of us um, yeah. and the importance of that direct human interaction. Cause I just think that, that patients, they, they, they need that. I think they thrive yeah. on, that interaction and, and what you're providing through those health coaches. I think that's a, a really uh, fantastic twist to the treatment model. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess if there's a question here, you know, when I looked at your, your EHR in particular, um, you know, I'm looking at it going, you know, I, I probably could do a lot more virtual work because right now I do zero. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there are a lot of patients in my practice that, that I have to see, I can't inject them any other way. And mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, primary care physicians when it comes to, to something, I mean, annual rectal exam or whatever, you just can't do that through the computer. So um, your EHR does, would support a, a in-person practice as well. You just line the patients up in the queue in the, mm -hmm. and see in the same way. Is that that true? Yeah. I mean, we have a whole scheduling area, so you could potentially like, the way I see it mostly is that physicians 
would want to kind of split up their day, right? And, and, or their week more likely than splitting up their day. I think the way that hospital systems tend to see it is just as like, oh, you're just a bunch of time blocks. Like I'm going to stick a virtual visit here and then you're going to see two people in person. Then you're going to do three virtual visits. And then, and like the physicians kind of scattered at that point, like it's really hard to switch from these in-person appointments to the virtual appointments. And then you might have a technology issue that makes the appointment run late. And now you're suddenly behind on your in-person visits. So it can get pretty complex from that standpoint. You know, there's a lot of research about attention switching. And although you're technically doing the same task, which is evaluating patients, virtual evaluations require a different set of skills. So I started doing telehealth in 2016. I actually would go around and give talks at a lot of major medical conventions about what we termed like basically website manner instead of bedside manner because the way that you treat patients exactly like you said is very different. When you're seeing them in person, there's often a physical thing that needs to be performed um, or done to them, whether that's like a treatment in person or a diagnostic in person. For the most part, what you have to be able to do in a virtual visit is maintain open lines of communication, just like we're doing now. Like you have to have turn taking, you have to allow the patient to finish talking without interrupting them. Um, you have to reflect back to the patient to try and get more information out of them because 80% of the diagnostic capability that you're going to be able to utilize from that visit is gonna come from a good history. Like you're not gonna do very much if any physical examination of the patient, unless, like I said, in the terms of, of occupational health, workers' comp cases, I had a lot of musculoskeletal injuries. So I might have them, you know, show me their wrist and like do some things. Or if I was gonna test them for carpal tunnel, I would have them, you know, like mock what I was doing and and ask them what they were experiencing. So I think it's a lot of the same thing that we do in person, but there, there are very subtle differences um, to that, that take different parts of your brain. So it would still be a different task in my opinion. So I would see physicians having, just like you probably have like your clinic day versus your OR day, you know, you're not trying to like, I'm going to go do this like hand surgery and then I'm going to pop back to clinic and I'm going to see four follow-ups and I'm going to pop back into the OR. Like it would be a lot of back and forth for you. So like the surgeons have operating days versus in clinic days. It's important for physicians who have a hybrid practice of in-person patients and digital patients to work out what blend of time they want to spend in person versus what time they want to spend um, digitally. So we've looked a lot at that as far as like, can that be a resource sharing opportunity, right? Like if you're the surgeon and you're going to use the ASC these days, then you might have other people using it on other days. Obviously, it's not just sitting empty on the days that you're not there. Um, the same thing with clinic space. So if I'm a doctor and I've paid you know, $1,000 a month to rent this small office space just to see my patients in person, you know, are there potentially two other doctors in my locality who might want to also share that space with me and we can operate virtually on the days we want to be virtual and then we just share the clinic space as well. So there's a lot of ways that that we've looked at reducing the cost of, of these like physical and tangible items. 
I had a question about the, I think you called them, are they lifestyle coaches or healthcare coaches? Health coaches, yeah. Yeah. So one, the background of those people. And then two, sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, that's something that like Dr. Cole, who's an orthopedist, could supplement his practice with. He could just plug that into his existing ortho-south mm-hmm. practice. And what are their backgrounds generally? You're talking about me being a health coach or no, I'm talking about using a, using a health coach. No, I'm saying could could your practice use Vital Health's platform with your existing patients as an extra source of re- revenue and also helping your patients say some of these people you're going to say, well, you've got to lose 20 pounds before I'll replace your knee. Um, seems like a no brainer that Vital Health platform could get plugged into an orthopedic practice. And she said there's a revenue sharing model. So I'm just trying to clarify what their backgrounds are and what they could bring to any practice. Yeah, isn't and that, that's that, exactly. Isn't it what true that, that it's, it's basically like a, a siloed service that um, much like some groups, you know, we have an MRI scanner. That's a that's a that's a revenue piece. It's mm-hmm. a service. Um, I guess practices could plug in and not have to hire the employees to manage it. Exactly. Yeah. So it is, it's a self-contained or as you would say, like siloed service, like there's no upkeep for you. Um, like I said, we hire all of these coaches. Our coaches have a variety of different backgrounds. Most of them have worked um, in coaching for a long period of time and have uh, a certifying health coaching credential. So just like uh, a nurse or a medical assistant goes to a particular training in order mm-hmm. to get a certified credential. Um, so we had looked around and, and found a credentialing body for healthcare coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we like to make sure that they all have that similar background. Um, some of them are actually certified through the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Uh, about half of them are nurses. Um, so they are either retired or just didn't want to work in person anymore. So we, we often hire nurses. Uh, we have nutritionists on our team, like an actual clinical nutritionist used to work in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, potentially a physical therapist that we've interviewed recently wanting to join the team. So the way we work is very much, um, you know, I think, what do we call it? Um, collective intelligence in a way, right? Like, so a patient may be working with one specific coach with one specific background, but we got collective genius. (laughs) And so the collective genius of all the individuals meeting together and we, we put all of our resources together and, you know, we utilize Slack um, just for communication between each other. So at any point, if you're not feeling comfortable, you know, you can talk to another coach on the team. You can talk to me. Um, you can ask any questions that you have regarding patients. So we always keep the lines of communication open between all members of the team. And we really um, not just support, but like really want that for our coaches, right? Like we encourage them to to ask questions, to, you know, tell a patient when they don't really know what is the best resource for them, right? Like the best way to to create relationship with a patient is actually just being honest and being vulnerable about something and say like, oh, wow, you're really dealing with um, this grief right now, which is why you gained 30 pounds. Like we cannot help you lose 30 pounds unless we deal with this grief you have over losing your husband. So that's not my area of expertise necessarily, but let me see what resources we have available to us so that we can really holistically manage your health 
Um, so we really try to take advantage of, of having a lot of people on our team with varying backgrounds so that we can constantly have another resource for our coaches to, to rely on. And then to, to your point, like, yes, it definitely is a no brainer for physicians, especially orthopedic surgeons, um, who do often have to turn a patient away because they, you know, don't meet the weight criteria or like I said, going from an ASC to an inpatient surgery because you're, you're thinking there could be a complication due to the patient's hypertension or due to the patient's diabetes. You're like, oh, they're just safer in the hospital. Like I'm, I just want them in the hospital so I know someone's checking on them after I've operated on them. Mm-hmm. Whereas the patient is hoping to get a same-day surgery and to go home where they're not going to pick up a nosocomial infection, where they're not going to be uncomfortable in a room wearing a hospital gown, you know, like they're more likely to get up and move around postoperatively in their own home where they're comfortable, where they're wearing their own comfy sweatpants, you know, and they don't, they're not afraid everyone's going to see their butt when they go walking down the hallway, (laughs) you know? So how do we help surgeons help their patients and also help their practice? What about locale of your coaches? I can see how perhaps you know, patients that might work nights or have, you know, they might want to take a call at 5 a.m. or at mm-hmm. 8 p.m. Maybe if you have coaches that are a few time zones away, mm-hmm. maybe that helps. Or, yeah. or is, it more, is, there, is there more of a focus that they be somewhat regional? Does it matter? Um, you know, it's a good thought. I, I like that idea as far as like, you know, time zones for the patients. We haven't had that come up yet where our patients are asking for something that's like really early in the morning, although our coaches are kind of spread all over the place. So we might have somebody on Eastern time zone helping somebody in um, like mountain time. So the time zones are really important for that. But we do focus on having at least like, you know, one to two, depending on the size of the practice local coaches like hopefully within less than an hour of the patients our equipment's super simple to use like we specifically went with a vendor that had a cellular hub for the devices so there's no bluetooth there's nothing for the patients to set up on their phones they just plug the hub in in their home it turns red when a reading needs to be taken it turns green if the readings have already been taken it's just that easy. And they just simply use the device the way they would use anything else. Step on the scale, take their blood pressure, take their blood sugar. And all of that data is automatically transmitted back to our platform. So we wanted to be really smart about that, knowing that we had elderly patients. But we have had one patient so far who said they really needed help setting up the equipment. <laughs> so it was important that we had a local coach who could drive to the patient's home, reassure the patient that it really is this simple to use um, because the whole, you know, point of making money from RPM CCM is the patients do have to be consistent and they need to keep using the program. So, you know, relationship helps with that. Ease of use definitely helps with that as well. And then when it comes to, you know, social determinants of health, I cannot you know, in good conscience, have a health coach in, you know, Los Angeles, California, trying to help someone in downtown Detroit, right? Like that person has, you know, unless they maybe grew up in Detroit, does not have a frame of reference for what that other person is going through. 
So from that standpoint, we want coaches to understand the locality where the patients are located, what kind of access they have as far as, you know, like, where are the grocery stores? What are the grocery stores? You know, are there hazards in that environment when it would come to exercising? You know, like maybe you can't just go for a walk outside your, your neighborhood's unsafe. So it's really important for us to have coaches who understand what's going on in the patient's environment. And that was really important. I had heard a TED talk many years ago about how a, co a company was training um, midwives and basically like prenatal and postnatal support people in Africa, like just from the villages. And so it was very important for that person to be in the village and of the village and from the village to really understand what was happening for those mothers um, and to provide the right level of support. And the mothers were a lot more, for lack of a better word, compliant <laughs> with what was being told to them from a medical standpoint when they had someone to support them in that area. And I know that that, that modality has transferred a bit like to underserved areas here, even in the United States and impoverished areas where we can actually train what are called community health workers who can go to people's homes, who understand what life is like with them and can provide the type of support they need. So we kind of have merged a medical model with a community health worker model um, to provide really targeted support to our patients and to create the kind of relationships that keep patients coming back and keep them engaged. When you talk about compliance or engagement, you know, what are the measures? How, how do you, how can you measure the success and the progress that you're making? Yeah, I think, you know, number one, we want patient subjective reports, right? Like how do the patients feel? Um, we look at you know, for patients focusing on weight loss, are they losing weight? Are their numbers better controlled than they were when they first started in the program? Are they consistently staying out of red alert zones for like their blood pressure or their diabetes? Um, the other thing that we're looking at with some of our value-based care clients um, who, or even like different Medicare plans, they, they take, um, records of how many times the patient's been in the ER in the last six months, how many times the patient's been in the hospital in the last six months, what services are those patients using, and how much is it costing? So we look at those capitation numbers, and um, we're going to do more of like a prospective with those. Um, that's a newer client for us. They've only been with us a few months. But as we get those patients utilizing the program, we can do that kind of longitudinal research, you know, because they can see every six months at least how much healthcare the person is utilizing and is that less than they used the month before. Um, for us, like for the health coaches, the real measures that our coaches focus on are the quantity of uh, visits that they can have with the patients. Um, that's for CPT code compliance and monitoring. So our system um, is very elegant in the way that the coaches attest to the time that they spent with patients. So we don't just track it using a timer. We actually have the coaches attest to it. That's a really important aspect of Medicare compliance. Um, and they write notes that correlate to the time spent with each individual patient. And at the end of the month, we're able to, to calculate like how many readings did the patient take? 
um, and then how many minutes were spent doing each of the activities that correlate either to the remote monitoring or the chronic care management so that we can make sure we're, we're billing all the right CPT codes and our platform actually generates all those CPT codes for us based on the minutes that were attested to um, by the coaches. So it's a really elegant system. It keeps us in compliance without a lot of extra headache. Is there an ideal number of patients or even a maximum number of patients that a coach handles? Yeah, for our coaches, um, it's 150 patients on their panel. Uh, reason for that is there are about 150 working hours in a month, like little more than that. So they have some time for administrative tasks um, and they need to be able to realistically document that they spent that amount of time with patients so that we can maximize the CPT billing. So I would never get our doctors, like I said, into a legal or compliance situation where I build for time that wasn't spent. Um, whereas many companies just say like, oh, well, we build the max every month. Like, you know, we're going to just send these out and we're going to build these codes and we're going to hope nobody looks. How many patients do you have in the ecosystem and how many physicians and practices are in the Vital ecosystem or platform? Yeah. So within our remote patient monitoring platform, we have probably like 12 to 15 doctors, if I, I have to like go and count them, because some of the practices are bigger. And so they have some um, support staff or not support staff, they're um, what do you call those? ancillary service providers. Mm -hmm. So they have um, some of those and then they fluctuate as far as like how many doctors they have at any given time. And then we have some really simple like one physician practices. <laughs> um, and then as far as patients, we have about 500 patients in the program right now. We haven't been doing the RPM CCN, like I said, that long, about 18 months. Um, like any good technology company or SaaS company or service company, we took a crawl, walk, run approach, um, which is, you know, we had one physician for like a year who was a concierge practice and he would onboard at the perfect rate, which was very slowly. <laughs> And then we would have, we had just one coach assigned to him and that's been his coach this whole time. And they've built that relationship and we've worked out, you know, as many of the possible, you know, kinks and errors and compliance issues that could possibly come up in running an RPM CCM company. And then we started opening it up. So he would refer his, you know, physician colleagues to us in his area. So we would take them on as, as, um, clients as well. We've had other larger groups reach out to work with us um, just through finding us, um, you know, maybe through a podcast like this. Um, and then we also have channel partners who do other things within the medical ecosystem. So like shared medical appointments is something that's getting a lot of attention right now um, for different specialty practices. Um, and so when they bring shared medical appointments to a specialty practice, oftentimes they also ask about remote monitoring and chronic care management as part of that package. So we partner with them to provide that um, on our side. So a lot of different ways that, that we encounter physicians. We're definitely um, at the beginning of our growth phase, but we're sensing a significant um, hockey stick. <laughs> Do you require your health coaches to be full time or is it possible for someone to work two days a week, three days a week, something like that? Um, we do balance that. So we have a couple part time health coaches who are brought on just because they're really excellent at what they do. And they do some administrative work as well um, in their off hours. Um, but many of them are full time. 
it's a little bit easier to manage them when they're not them, but they're they're patient responsibilities when they're full-time because otherwise if they're off one day then someone else has to be following up on the readings for those patients we can't just let the patients go without someone monitoring them for a couple days so then you have the balance of responsibilities for those patients would fall onto other people since we're not big enough yet we're like i can say oh i definitely have 10 people working mondays and 10 tuesdays and 10 wednesdays you know so i can kind of balance that so like oh these people are only going to work monday wednesday friday and these other people are going to pick up the slack for them tuesday thursdays you know it's a little different from that standpoint when we're small i think yeah. as we're, we become a larger more established organization it will be more commonplace for us to have part-time staff and part-time workers um, sharing the responsibilities with each other. But we've done a good job so far balancing that for the two part-time individuals that we have. Other than podcasts, how are you marketing Vital? Um, so we actually have an internal marketing team um, who do like um, basically like cold calls to physician offices, um, telling them about the services that we have. Um, we have our website, we have my LinkedIn, where I talk a lot about remote patient monitoring and how to avoid some of the pitfalls and the um, legal risks that these other companies just won't even tell you exist. So I like to make sure that physicians are very well educated in this space. Um, just like I said, like most things, when someone's trying to sell you something, they're going to make it sound like it's super simple and there's zero risk associated with it. You're just going to take home a check at the end of the day. Uh, and that happens to physicians a lot, right? Like they want to use your license for this med spa and they want to use your license for this, um, mm -hmm. you know, like MAT program, medication assisted therapy program. You know, it's like, oh, it's OK. We just we just need to use your license and your NPI. It's like, well, at the end of the day, like that credential identifies you as the 100% responsible party mm -hmm. for anything that could possibly go wrong. So you're, you know, there's no zero risk proposition when it comes to letting other people use your credential. Right. So I use a lot of um, educational as marketing. Um, and then again, like I said, through channel partners who market for us as well. You know, most people that go to medical school have lots of ideals and dreams about their, their future and their practice. Jail time isn't one of them. No. And sadly, a lot of them, even if they don't end up serving jail time, which I have talked to doctors who have, not necessarily for RPM CCM, but for other things. But I was talking to a, a healthcare attorney the other day, actually down in Texas, where you guys are located, um, Dr. Amanda Hill. And she's amazing. So any physicians listening in Texas have health legal questions, like look her up. But she was telling me that, you know, unfortunately, being a lawyer, she gets called when things go really, really bad. And the physicians just want so badly to help their patients and they're oftentimes taken advantage of. So she told me the story of a physician whose um, mother had diabetes. And so when she heard about remote patient monitoring for diabetic patients, a company was, it was very easy for them to sell this to her. I'm like, oh yeah, we, we partner your patients with a nurse practitioner and they're all going to get a glucometer and we're going to monitor them. And then we'll, you know, bill Medicare for it and we'll give you a check at the end of the month. Everything will be good. Turns out they never sent out a single glucometer. There was no nurse practitioner. All they did was send bills. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that's called fraud. Yeah. Should, and should the doctor that. figured that out right away. Yeah. But by then, it was too late. It had already been done. And she had to self-identify herself to Medicare as being 
complicit in fraud. And that does not work out well for you when it comes to your license and your credentials and, and sanctions that can be pulled against you. So it's really, really important for doctors to, to know who they're working with, to be able to trust who they're working with, um, and to realize that, that things can go wrong. And unfortunately, there are people out there who are profiteering off of our willingness to, to just want to help. Brittany, we want to know more about the founders. I know you're a co-founder here. So tell us about you. Tell us about your other co-founders. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, about me, I'm a physician. My co-founder, uh, his name is Doug Sumaraga. He has, you know, an incredibly, I just think it's an incredible background, honestly. Every time he tells about his background during one of our pitches, I'm even more impressed. Um, he came out of school um, with a medical technology background and started working in Fremont um, in the technology space. So kind of stayed away from medicine in the first part of it, was one of the leaders um, at SAP, one of the leaders in supply chain for Apple um, and at the Mac factory, and actually um, worked with um, Northrop Grumman and was in charge of training and deploying um, thousands of baggage handlers after the 9-11 incident. So when it comes to organizational process, when it comes to technology, you know, and he's founded companies in the technology space. I actually had worked with him at my prior um, telehealth company where we worked in occupational health, which is how we met. Um, and just knowing that he had the capabilities to, to organize, to develop processes, um, and to evaluate technology, which were not really my strengths, right? Like I, I'm a people person. I love relationships. I love connections. Um, but I tell my team all the time, like I need, I need process people. I need to be surrounded by operations people, people who can scale things, um, because relationships are amazing and they are scalable, but only if you have the know-how and the process around it. So I've watched you on, on LinkedIn. That's how I, I first learned about Vitel. So we can say your team's doing a good good job there. <laughs> um, I think when we spoke before, you mentioned working with uh, with Lee Houston, perhaps on the credentialing piece. Um, I saw that Harvey Castro is on your on your board. Um, so those are some familiar names for people that 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 look at LinkedIn from time to time. Can you can you uh, maybe talk about those two pieces and what they bring? Yeah, so Harvey um, started working with us a little over a year ago, right after he had released his book, Chat GPT in Healthcare. So I talked about like relationships and scale, um, you know, looking at the balance between one-on-one -on -one visits and, and care pods. <laughs> you know, you have to have a different kind of balance nowadays so that things can become more scalable. So we've taken a, a hard look at how AI can help physicians um, and where we incorporate that into our workflows. So from utilizing it to condense information from the subjective and objective part of the note into an assessment so that the doctors don't have to rewrite that part, um, to interviewing patients for um, prior to coming to their appointments. So looking at how we can use AI to take more concise and not concise, but but better histories for the physicians who are going to see their patients. So Harvey's been really instrumental in helping us um, 
evaluate new AI companies, again, looking at compliance issues, legal issues, um, things that he's really immersed himself in that um, I really haven't had the time or bandwidth to do. So that's why you want to surround yourself with people who are really smart in areas where you're you know, not as strong. Um, Leah and I have worked together as far as utilizing her platform. We talked a bit about in the beginning about credentialing and contracting. I think absolutely physicians need to be in charge of that credential. I think we talked about that a bunch here. Like, this is your credential. You are responsible for it. Like, make sure legally no one else is using it. Um, and in order to do that, we need a system that prioritizes physician of these credentials. So working with Leah as she develops her product um, for go-to-market, like working very closely with her on what our needs are um, as we plan out and develop a medical group, um, how do we, we streamline the credentialing and contracting process using her technology? Because it's, it's really amazing what they can do with the blockchain, not just from identity verification, but also from cutting down the amount of time that it takes. Is normally the credentialing contracting process can take anywhere from 30 to 90 days. Um, but with these instantaneously verifiable credentials, you can cut that down to, to mere minutes. Jeff and I are both pretty analytical guys. We're, we're wondering, Jeff had sent me this question earlier. Do you have objective data showing, you know, Vitel providing uh, decreased hospital admissions or, or fewer readmissions and things like that? Yeah, I think we had talked on that a little bit. Um, we have a practice who does have um, the data for their patients as far as hospital admissions. They keep really good track of that. Um, and they just started a couple of months ago. So it'll probably be another four to six months before we can compare um, their baseline data to our um, interventional data. And um, we haven't onboarded that many other patients. So it would probably be more like case study format at this point. But over mm -hmm. the long term, I think over the next one to two years, we will be able to come up with a lot more data on that. You know, I'm like you guys, I have a research background. Like I want to make sure that that when we're making those types of, of comparisons, like that we can really say like, this was the intervention, this was the effect that we noticed. And I want that to be a measurable effect. So we want to make sure that we have enough data right. um, collated before we start making um, claims that we did something. And then I wanted to get into the financials. I, I don't think I got the pitch deck. If I did, I didn't have a chance to review it. What uh, you're in the middle of a fundraise. Tell us about that. What you think the market size looks like, et cetera. Yeah. So market size is, is extremely large when you're looking at just Medicare patients alone. Right. So we have which I'd have to I'd have to bring up the exact numbers. You guys could probably bring up the slides. I know well, it's, it's like everybody. Right. It's yeah. Potential. But basically, like, you know, if you look at the Medicare population, probably about 80 percent of Medicare patients have at least two chronic conditions. Um, and that's just based on um, the data from the Medicaid or sorry, Medicare um, and CMS. So if you look at that as kind of like your your total market, we're looking to achieve, if we could even get, you know, 5% of that, we'd be doing really well, like yeah. into the billions of dollars. Um, so it's, it's a huge opportunity for this market. With the contracts that we have right now, even being on the smaller side, you know, you're looking at revenue of 50 to 100,000 per month. Um, for a, for a small company, which would be kind of equivalent for a small practice. So we actually have um, 
a revenue calculator that we can utilize with our clients um, when they're looking at how much revenue will this generate for their practice. We can show them like how much additional revenue they would expect based on the number of physicians and number of providers within their practice and number of patients that they have. And just some, you know, very baseline characteristics. If you are a geriatrics practice, obviously the number is going to go a lot higher. Whereas if you're more of a general medical practice and only, you know, 30% of your population is Medicare, then the numbers are going to be smaller. So we do have a pretty elegant revenue calculator. Um, I believe it was on our website. We may have moved it though, um, but you can always message me and I'll be able to put you in touch with the people who can show you that. And then to look at your offerings, and this is backtracking mm -hmm. just a little bit, but if somebody, a practice or an individual came in, do you have almost a menu where they click Yes, I need legal. Yes, I need credentialing. Yes, I need. And is that something that you've brought into kind of a membership model or is there per mm -hmm. service uh, pricing or is it more you refer them to that that entity and, and that's a separate um, separate cost? Yeah, so that's part of the evolution of Vital Health. Um, Vital Health as a technology company obviously exists very successful um if you do you know want to see our pitch deck if you're interested in investing that would be vital health um as the technology company as it exists right now we've spun off a, a vital health physician cooperative which is an independent medical group um, and the independent medical group will function exactly as I've stated as a cooperative. So it's a professional corporation so that we can bill Medicare or other insurance companies um, incorporated here in the state of California just this year. And then from the cooperative bylaws standpoint, um, it's based on an agricultural cooperative model where we do group purchasing for um, things like malpractice, um, you know, like I said, looking at mm -hmm. medical space, shared services, shared purchasing, um, shared contracting, because yeah, most of these companies will say like, oh, well, you're a single physician practice or two or three physician practice. Like we're going to charge you $250 per provider per contract for contracting. Okay. If I say I have a hundred providers at my medical practice, okay. Suddenly the rate goes way down, mm -hmm. you know? And so if a hundred of us are splitting the cost, it becomes a lot more reasonable. So the goal is to, you know, yeah. have people participate in the membership, take advantage of, of cost of, um, what do we call that economy of scale? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What about the fund? We didn't talk about the fundraise that you're currently in. Yeah. So the fundraise that we're currently raising right now, like I said, Vital Health as a technology company, Vital Health proper, um, we're raising to expand and to grow the um, RPM CCM component. This will be um, essentially what we call a seed plus round. We raised a seed early on on similar terms. So we'll be raising a seed plus on our way to a series A, um, probably by the end of 2024 or early 2025. Um, at that point, we'd be looking more at like 50 million valuation. Right now we're raising on a 15 million valuation for $1.5 million. Um, we're doing that on the basis that given the growth just in our current contracts alone, like not bringing in a single additional physician's office, which would be crazy. I don't know how we'd go a whole year without bringing in a single new client, but say that happens. Just with the growth in our current clients alone, um, we are projected to have about a 5.5 million annual recurring revenue by the end of this year. So, and, and those are very conservative as far as projections go. 
So we thought we could raise 1.5 to stabilize and or accelerate that growth and get to that 5 million mark. And once we've hit the 5 million ARR, um, then we would head into the Series A. Mm -hmm. And you're in California. Are all of your practices in California? They are not. Actually, our practices are in um, California, in Arizona, and on the East Coast, uh, I think Pennsylvania, Delaware. And they belong to the cooperative if they're not in California? No, they do not. Not yet. How does that work? We have to get um, some sort of regulatory sign off in the other states or? Um, for Because these are just for the RPM CCM practices that are using that. So like we talked about, that's kind of a siloed offering. So the right. doctors can be, I mean, our doctors, none of them who are using the RPM CCM are even using the Vital Health EHR. They're using the entirely separate platform that's only for RPM and CCM um, that's built as, a, as an add-on module to the EHR proper. So you can utilize the RPM CCM be any, um, you know, any stage of a, a physician corporation. So most of them are using anything from like in-house built EHRs to like ECW or eClinical Works, um, Elation. Um, office ally, like all different kinds of EHRs. So um, they don't necessarily have to be part of the cooperative to utilize our services. The same goes the other way too. If a physician is a member of the cooperative, there is no, um, there's nothing tying them to having to buy services from Vital Health. Like our goal is to include all physicians um, regardless of practice, whether they practice for a hospital, whether they practice for a group, um, so that we can come together and we can start working together towards the things that are in our best interest. So to take down the corporate practice of medicine, to improve the lives of physicians overall. Um, so the cooperative is a lot more powerful, the more people who are involved. Right. I guess I, my question was if, mm -hmm. if um, a practice is part of the cooperative and wanting to take advantage of the group purchasing, do they have to be in California? No, they don't. No, we would be setting up separate business entities just as like an HR from an HR standpoint for you just need a separate business license to sell in those states. Got you. So you, Jeff, you've got me really thinking about something here. Maybe this is a whole nother podcast, but this is the right person to have the conversation with. But would there be any law or regulation preventing an, a nationwide co-op? No, there isn't. Because I think that's a barrier to our success right now is that physicians mm -hmm. have been fragmented and we can't achieve the economy of scale that a hospital system or a big insurance company can. And so we're captive to being em employed We are, and, and the patients suffer and we suffer. And, you know, the data is all out there on how miserable everybody is in healthcare, including the patients, the hospitals are broke. And uh, so. Yeah, no, there's absolutely no legal reason why we can't practice all together yeah. um, and run our business services through it. I mean, you see all the time medical groups are typically, housed, you know, like I said, my experience is in telehealth. So I had doctors practicing all over the country, living mm -hmm. all over the country, and we were all utilizing the same medical group based in California mm -hmm. for those services. So as a medical group, our purchasing, credentialing, contracting, all of that's done through the group. Mm -hmm. um, and then each individual physician purchases their share of the services that the group has already purchased. You know, we just posted this thing that came out AMA. It said there was a survey done. 40% uh, mm -hmm. of physicians are contemplating leaving within the next two years. Yeah. And 
you know, this is already with the exodus that took place after COVID. And uh, whether that survey was accurate, I can't tell you, but the trend is there and none of us can deny it. But the thing that most of the comments on social media discussed lack of autonomy mm -hmm. as the reason. And so it looks like Vital, you know, is giving that back. Our goal is always physicians who are independent, but not alone. Right. I think mm -hmm. that we see health systems as almost like this safe place where like we can play well with others mm -hmm. and there wasn't anything, no existing structure for that in the greater world. Right. Like not anymore. There used to be, but then it kind of got, all got absorbed by health systems and private equity. Um, so the physicians were very scared to be alone in the world. Like that's not, that wasn't our model that we were comfortable with. And so we wanted to really make that something that was more attainable for every physician, like independence, autonomy, all of those things. Um, as far as the survey, like I don't not believe that 40% of physicians will say that they want to leave. I think there was another study that was published actually like several years ago that looked at kind of a similar thing where like they interviewed all the physicians and they were like 60% of them said they were going to leave. And then they looked at it five years later and like less than 10% of those doctors actually left. <laughs> yeah. But the people that can leave are the best and the brightest that can do something else to, to support themselves financially. So exactly. it dilutes the talent that's available for patients even further. Or what you've got is people like, you know, Jeff and I's age that are we're just kind of stuck with the fire we've got going, but we got to just keep, keep chugging along. But then you see stuff like 90% of physicians are depressed and, you know, uh, do you practice clinically and when did you graduate from med school, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I graduated in 2009 from the University of Wisconsin. Um, I went and did a surgical residency here in Sacramento at UC Davis. I did three clinical years. And then uh, during my research year, I was diagnosed with bilateral retinal detachment. Oh, goodness. Um, and yeah, I underwent emergency surgery um, for that. It was just found on like a random visit mm -hmm. or a medical student was like, can I dilate your eyes? And I was like, sure. Get lost, you know? And then yeah. I let them do it. And it, it like, they all just like freaked out. They're like, what is wrong with your retinas? And so, um, Holy yeah, cow. miraculously found that, but then also really showed me all of the ways that like the system had been just destroying me as a human being. Yeah. Like really put a microscope on that during my recovery period. I said like, I can't continue to live in the system. So I worked yeah. at an urgent care for a while, got involved in telehealth in 2016, really when telehealth was first starting out mm -hmm. and still saw physicians continually abused, taken advantage of, not paid in a timely manner. And when they were paid, it was like so little for the work that they were doing on behalf of these companies. It's, this is just, this is, not just it's not untenable it's like just yeah. disgusting to me yeah. so it's just wrong it was born out of that like we can do this like we don't need to work for the teledocs and the sesames of the world like yeah. we can do this ourselves like it, the technology exists so yeah. i i thought that that was the best way to use everything that i learned um especially like from 2016 on about digital health um and just really organize and and empower my physician colleagues to do better for themselves and for their patients. 
Yeah, I think we use the word pawns because I just yeah. I see that, you know, yeah. where we are yet. I think I wrote it in that thing the other day that, you know, with physicians have, they've got intellect, you know, they're, they're smart. They've got yeah. to drive, you know, drive beyond most any other professional people that I know. And they've got opportunity to do other things. And so, you know, you, you just hope we keep physicians in the job, but find ways to, to promote that, like what you're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, I looked up this morning because I wrote another follow-up thing to that deal the other day. I mean, United Health Group last quarter. Yeah. It's like 70, I forget if it's 75 or $95 billion. Yeah. That's yep. patients' premiums. <laughs> and yet they raised premiums and cut payments to physicians. Yeah. And like, oh. okay. How much more money do you yeah, guys? How much need? is enough? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's... Yeah, you should look at like what if you talk to like Sandeep um, from Mishi Health at all. Hmm. I haven't. I know his name, hmm. but I have not talked to him. Yeah, Sandeep's working with me. We have another meeting on Monday. Um, we always kind of tag each other in similar posts because, like, I said in one of my posts, like the the turning point, like where something becomes socially acceptable is like very small. It's like seven or 8%. But like the actual like tipping point where it would be a, considered a social norm for everyone to be an independent physician again is actually only 30%. So the optics is that 80 to 90% of people are doing it when only 30% of people are doing it. So we always tell each other like goal is 30 by 2025. And like, what yeah. would it take to get 30% of doctors interested and in starting to practice independently by 2025 because if we can get that amount of physicians doing it then it's going to appear to all of the medical students that that is the social norm and practice again yeah do and you plus just the the, the the growing prevalence of you know direct pay models and mm -hmm. cash you know because i think people are getting smart to think you know maybe i'm just going to have a catastrophic uh insurance yeah and bring down this, this crazy deductible you know for well, like what dr brown said about car insurance okay yeah. car insurance covers catastrophic events yeah. car wrecks can you imagine if car insurance were meant to pay for your gas like just picture this i'm going to go on a road trip and i'm going to leave california i'm going to go visit my mom in tennessee so i start driving and i need to get gas relatively frequently, like every couple of days, you know, my insurance decides that I've used too much gas. Yeah. Like my stipend <laughs> of gas is supposed to be once every two weeks. So yeah. how dare you use that much gas, <laughs> right? So they're going to cut me off and then I'm going to be stranded like in Oklahoma somewhere, like no longer in California, not in Tennessee. And like, well, you know, at this point, you could use your insurance and pay your deductible to get towed to Tennessee or back to California. You're like, what? Yeah. No, that is not how that is supposed to work. Like, I'm supposed to be able to use gas. Would you like to be introduced to somebody that's doing a direct patient care model company? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I know uh, Mishy is like that too. Like, well, they're just kind of collating everyone together, but pa patients can actually go there and find direct pay. Mm -hmm. Um physicians and 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 find the services that they need and see how much it costs so it's all focused on cash pay and price transparency well i met a guy a couple of weeks ago we're going to end up putting him on the podcast that's what he's doing 
He's growing rapidly. He goes straight to the employers and they, in a nutshell, they cut out Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. Mm -hmm. They go to the employers. They go directly to the physicians. They go directly to the radiologists. They yep. say, hey, how much are you getting with Blue Cross Blue Shield for an MRI? They actually can pay the radiologist more, cut Blue, Sh Blue Cross Blue Shield completely out. Yep. The patient goes and gets their MRI the same day, pays less, and everybody's happy, including the employer. Yeah. The only thing that I didn't understand is like we talked a little bit about the catastrophic stuff and how mm -hmm. that's handled. He said you can rent the PPO, and I didn't really understand what he meant by that, but okay. we're going to learn more. Because that's where I really see like the cooperative growing and like because really the main thing i think that there are main things that the physicians ask me when they want to start an independent practice like technology is you know whatever it is a dime a dozen but they want to know where do they get patients and how do they pay for like malpractice and benefits and stuff like that and so um those are some of the issues that we've looked at solving. And I think the best way to solve the patient issue is to partner with people who are already selling direct pay insurance for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Obviously doctors aren't the only people who can see that the current medical system sucks. And like, you know, you can make fun predictions all day, but like mine are like Amazon will pull out of healthcare. Like they have no business being there. They're going to realize that in the next like year or two. And they're just mm -hmm. going like, to dump all of their healthcare interests. And number two is insurance companies think they're too big to fail. They're not like Man. there, there will be people who eat away yeah. At their um at their at their current hold, for lack yeah. of a word, on employers. And they'll do that very successfully. And next thing you know, UHC will be filing for bankruptcy. That's a sound bite. I'd love that. <laughs> I believe it. I believe that yeah. those that the Bukas will eventually file for bankruptcy and we're probably gonna see that in the next ten years. It's a it's a David and Goliath battle though. Mm -hmm. And paying for your sins, you know, and just, you know, what they've done is just, just not good for the U S for patients, for the whole healthcare system. It's, and you think it only took, I mean, it probably took less than 10 years for them to achieve that size. Like once, you know, managed care agreements went into place and in like, what is that late eighties, early nineties. And then suddenly everyone had that. And like, I remember like very vividly because my dad was a UAW worker and we had HMO or whatever. It was very good insurance, no co-pays, no deductibles. He didn't pay the premium. You know, you, the GM paid all of it. And the first time my mom ever had to pay a copay, it was like five bucks. She freaked out. She was like, what the heck? This is health insurance. Like I have health insurance. You can't charge me $5. Yeah. And that was $5. Like nowadays people are paying like $100 or more yeah. out of pocket. And I was even looking at like my boyfriend's plan. Like he pays $600 a month for Kaiser. And they still charged him like $250 to use the ER for a laceration and charge $20 per prescription. And when I look at like good rx for example for the exact same generic prescription 12 dollars. yeah that's the craziest thing ever i just use good rx and it's cheaper than my insurance that i'm paying for yeah explain that i don't you know, know. that's so that's where the uh 70 billion dollars comes from right yeah, like that's right, that's right. Like, then they own the pvms and they own optum and they own all of this so it's like everywhere they can you know shave an extra dollar off of you times that times 10 million subscribers 
right? Like they're rolling in cash and they think that we don't notice because Americans are bad at math. Yeah, maybe some are. Yeah, exactly. And soon the ones, even the ones who are bad at math are yeah. going to know that Eventually. they're going to off. Man, man, I'm glad you're doing this. And I, I, I wish you all the success in the world. We're definitely going to. Partners, like this is a huge problem, honestly, huge. And one, one physician company, like we're not going to solve it. But if we can really solve our piece of it really, yeah. really well and partner with the other people solving their piece really, really well, like right. that's when you really create. Like it's not just David versus Goliath. Now it's a whole army. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well and I think that even just the voice, I think collaborating through our voice mm -hmm. is important you know i see your stuff i'm liking it i'm you know yeah for you sure. the same um and i just think all of a sudden we start to meet each other you know some of the other folks mm -hmm. that are speaking up in these threads and oh yeah um, i always comb through other people's threads when it looks like they're talking about the same thing as me and then i like connect with all the people commenting on their stuff who i'm not connected to yet mm -hmm. Like, oh, if you like this, you'll like what I have to say kind of That's thing. Right. That's right. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of synergy with, with groups we've already talked with in our own personal passions, Jeff and I do. So we're we're not done with this conversation. We're just getting started. So, Brittany, I'd, I'd really like to thank you for joining us today. If, if I've understood correctly, it's been a fascinating conversation. Vitel offers a turnkey suite of products and services to promote physician independent practices while also increasing revenue for those practices while at the same time uh, promoting wellness and health for the patients. That sounds like a perfect summary of what we do. Okay. I'm going to have to save that, you know, for when they say like, can you summarize what you do in 20 words or less? I tend to be a pretty verbose person. Yeah, this <laughs> that was great. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for the Merge Medical Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Brown with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Cole and Dr. Brittany Bussey. <laughs>